Three men on a mountain, up on Calvary, and the man in there was Jesus, he died for you and me. Well, the man on the left was a sinner man, tried to cross, he bled, he could have been forgiven, but he mocked the Lord instead. They say you are the Son of God. Three men on a mountain, up on Calvary, and the man in the middle was Jesus, he died for you and me. The man on the right was a sinner too, but he was sorry for his sins, he asked the Lord's forgiveness, and Jesus spoke to him. Fear not, fear not, this earthly death. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first criminal mentioned in the passage continues the derision of the soldiers from the passage that comes before this, where the soldiers mocked and taunted him with the same demand. If you really are who you claim to be, then you should be able to save yourself and me too. Well, at first pass, uh, I thought this could be a desperate last-ditch effort on the part of the criminal to save himself from execution, which arguably could be a sign of faith. The passage suggests, rather, that his words are a display of a persistent hardness of heart, joining the scoffers while suffering the same fate as the one he scoffed. In contrast, the second criminal mentioned in the passage shows contrition, acknowledging his guilt and rebuking the other criminal for his audacity to mock an innocent man with his dying breath. Why are you wasting your breath? You are about to meet your maker and yet you still have no shame or fear. You would still rather deflect, 
heaping abuse on this innocent man rather than acknowledge your own guilt. Though Jesus is perishing alongside him, the second criminal has the foresight of faith to know that another kingdom is coming, a kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, even in the face of his untimely and unjustified death. And in the face of his own quote unquote justified death, he asks, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Faith here isn't expressed in the at best genuine belief that the man on the cross next to you will get both himself and you down and spare both your lives. Faith rather holds that even in the face of certain death, the world's standards of power and authority are not ultimate and even death is outlasted by something more permanent. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the midst of Jesus's own anxiety and self-talk, the oxygen to his brain growing increasingly faint, the relentlessness um, of the insults of the soldiers, his vision blurring in and out, the jeering and shouting of the crowds, the blunt force of trauma and his body going into shock, his organs systematically shutting down, feeling utterly abandoned by God. The man Jesus himself displays faith in response to this man's faith. We will be together on the other side of this, even this very day. Oh my God, I believe in you. I hope in you. I love you. And I grieve that so often I have wounded you by my sins. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, Standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. As he approached the final moments of his life, Christ was no doubt concerned with the well-being of his mother, as well as with fulfilling the law as he had throughout his ministry. According to Jewish law, after the death of the father, the firstborn son was the head of the family and had to provide for the widows of his father. One of his final acts was to honor his mother by ensuring she was cared for and provided for by a trustworthy friend. More so than the physical family, it would seem Christ was concerned with the institution of his spiritual family. For the purposes of this reflection, the disciple who was there at the foot of the cross can remain anonymous. In this story, let us think of him as a faithful believer who is loved by Jesus and envision ourselves in his place. 
Just as the disciple took Mary into his home, God took us into his household. At that moment, Christ entrusted us into each other's care. We are called to love and to be loved by the members of our extended spiritual family. With membership in a family comes a sense of belonging, support, and kinship, but also disagreements, hardships, and grief. Like our natural family, our spiritual family may disappoint us at times. So we cannot let the strength of our bond be contingent on emotions. We must persevere in loving one another, even when some members fall short of our expectations. This is not a family created by human decision, but the family chosen by God. He has his reasons for each of us to be here. We all make our contributions to the family, especially the love we demonstrate through our good works toward each other. The family God created shares a bond that supersedes race, nationality, and biological connections. It is sealed by the Holy Spirit. I should feel a deeper connection to a Christian sister on the other side of the world than I do to a non-believing friend who lives next door. But I cannot honestly say I always feel that. But if I base my behavior on Christ's example, I should feel it. When Jesus was asked about his family, he said, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He said nothing about shared skin color or cultural affinity. As humans, we all have our own prejudices and we may be predisposed to look out for our own interests even at the expense of someone else. I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us of these wrong attitudes and continue transforming our hearts and deepening our love for each other. Being a Christian for many years, I have often learned about what being a child of God means for my relationship with him. But I have heard much less about what it means for my relationship to fellow believers. I don't think churches tend to market themselves as families. Maybe we subconsciously avoid that because we know being part of a family is hard work. Well, like every family, we are a work in progress. But I believe the Holy Spirit will empower us to see each other through God's eyes and to spread the love of God to all his people. I pray that we will continue to be led by the spirit of unity for those who are led by the spirit of God are truly the children of God. Oh my God, I believe in you. I hope in you. I love you. And I grieve that so often I have wounded you by my sins. <laughs>
From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems in these words, Jesus has reached his lowest point. His people have rejected him, turned on him and hung him in the most brutal of ways to a cross. His followers and closest friends have denied him and deserted him. Even the light now has supernaturally shrunk from him and the breath in his lungs will follow shortly. In this moment of desperation, he senses a distance from God as he bears the brokenness of the world. He cries out in the words of Psalm 22, desperate for the presence of the Father he knows so intimately. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This last year has been a lesson in isolation and distance for each of us. We have felt the burden of being separated from one another. Many of us have lost loved ones. Many times this year, I have felt defeated and alone and used words similar to Jesus. God, where are you in all of this? God, this is too much to bear. And yet time after time, God has shown his faithfulness. His presence has been the one constant. Every time I have cried out to him and dragged myself reluctantly back to him in prayer, he has been there patiently waiting. Jesus faced the deepest abandonment, the greatest isolation, and a suffering I cannot even fathom. He submitted himself to this pain so that we could be reconciled to the Father. By choosing the rejection of the cross, Jesus allowed us a new relationship with the Father to know him and to be known by him, to be a child welcomed in his embrace. Now, in our pain, in our desperation, when we cry out, my God, my God, we know our cries do not go unheard. He has not forsaken us. We are not alone. In our deepest mourning and suffering, he is there. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, a verse which I have treasured for many years, we are reminded of this fundamental truth. God promises us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He offers his presence to all. He draws the weary, the mourning, the poor, the shamed towards him. There is no pedigree required to enter his presence. He whispers quietly, come to me as you are. Hebrews 11 verse 4 to 5 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Even now, let us approach God's throne of extravagant grace and allow ourselves to be found as children in the presence of the Almighty. I pray that we would know the depths of God's faithfulness on this Good Friday and be reminded of this powerful truth that through it all, we are not forsaken.
Oh my God, I believe in you. I hope in you. I love you. And I grieve that so often I have wounded you by my sins. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. The scripture referenced here is the 69th Psalm. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. I thirst. What a simple statement of need. A child may say, I'm thirsty, not hoping against hope, but in full expectation that their parent will hear and soothe without further need for further clarification or context for interpretation. Yet in its simplicity, it is a vulnerable thing to baldly state our needs. Something that I at least have somehow learned to disguise in self-censorship and predetermined outcomes. In his passion, Christ experiences what I fearfully anticipate his need, his thirst, is heard, but met in mockery, not understanding. There is no comfort on the cross. Sour wine is a common drink, but it cannot soothe, to paraphrase the psalm once again, a throat parched with weeping. As Reverend Ellendale asked us to pray into the word beloved this Lent, I also have been praying that I, in the knowledge that I am known completely and loved completely, might speak plainly, shamelessly before God. It is enough to say, I am thirsty, I am weary, I know not what I need, but you, Lord, hear and understand. When we are thirsty, Christ is our living water poured out for us. Let us receive the words of Jesus to us. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. As scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Oh my God, I believe in you. I hope in you. I love you. And I grieve that so often I have wounded you by my sins.
He said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. For all their solemnity, the completion of God's plan, the weight of glory, the moment of Christ's death. These are the words that stick the most in the throat. It's hard to repeat them. It is finished. Perhaps what's hard is less their finality though and more our knowledge in repeating them of just how unfinished we are. That same aching feeling forms the first object of our confession each week in the Book of Common Prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. 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 Christ is done, but we feel at this hour and in each moment so undone. The Anglican poet John Donne, who was always keenly aware of the pun of his own last name, famously captured those same feelings in his hymn to God the Father. When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Our sin and incompleteness seems forever to spill beyond Christ's words on the cross and what he has finished. But elsewhere in his poetry, John Donne reminds us that those same words, in Greek, two in Latin, three in English, are followed in modern English with a period. And in that period, that single dot on the page, it is finished, holds in a single moment all eternity. This is John Donne. Was in him that same humility that he would be a man and leave to be. Or as creation he hath made as God with the last judgment but one period that joins in one our extremes. He shall come, he is gone. He shall come, he is gone. 
What Christ has finished on the cross is finished right here, right now, in this moment, and always will be. Let's take a moment to dwell in the period at the end of those words just a little bit longer and bow our heads in silence. Oh my God, I believe in you. I hope in you. I love you. And I grieve that so often I have wounded you by my sins. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus crying with a loud voice said, Father into your hands, I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. Jesus says to God, the parent. Spirit is breath, the breath of life. The image here of Jesus breathing his last into the hands of God drives home to me the sorrow of God at the death of Jesus. I can imagine nothing worse than for a child's life to escape through the fingers of their loving parent. Breath turned to air cannot be grasped. Jesus breathes his last and God must weep. Spirit is breath, the breath of life. In high school, one of my classmates died suddenly of a, in a tragic accident. At his wake, his parents read from his final journal entry where he had prayed that with every breath he would serve God. I've wondered why he wasn't allowed more breaths. Why did Kelly have to die? And here, why did Jesus have to die? Why do we suffer? To be honest, I don't know the answer. But here's something. If Jesus gives his spirit into the hands of God, then even aside from Trinitarian complexities, God is there at the death of this executed prisoner, reaching for him, and Jesus' spirit belongs to God. God is present, even when we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even when darkness comes over our whole lives and the sun's light fails, God is present and God weeps with us. Spirit is breath, the breath of life, and even though Jesus breathes his last in this moment, we know that this is not the ultimate end of the, his breath of life. It does not, in fact, slip through the fingers of God the parent and into nothingness. The spirit of Jesus re-enters the world and breathes life through it. His spirit he leaves with us. The Holy Spirit moves like a mighty wind through the world, tearing barriers in two, and we must choose to allow this divine life to fill our lungs and breathe out from us in our love and our actions. 
Spirit of God, I pray that we may feel God's presence when we weep, that we may give our spirits into your hands. Teach us what we do not know. Give us faith in response to faith. Help us to persevere in love for each other in this, your family. Thank you that our cries do not go unheard and we are not forsaken. Thank you for meeting us in our vulnerability. Thank you for the finality and eternity of what you have done. And I pray that you may breathe your spirit into us so that with every exhalation, we may work to send into the world your breath of life. Amen.